So we had this pretentious um, design philosophy called rhizomatic uh, game design, which, you know, um, kind of comes out of like uh, so uh, Deleuze and Guattari, these, you know, continental philosophers. And, <laughs> and, uh, and you're clearly from New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, can you imagine, right? Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to Frank Lance, currently director of the NYU Game Center. He was the director of game design at Game Lab, was the co-founder of Area Code, and is perhaps best known as the lead designer of Drop7. One of the things I'm trying to do uh, with this this podcast is sort of get at, um, you know, not just design issues, but why people were drawn to games, what what drew them to become game designers, um, and so you know, a, a good place to usually start is, you know, what was what was the first game that you remember? Wow, that's a really good question. First game that I remember. Um Played a lot of asteroids in the arcade. How old would you have been at that time? I would have been like 12, 13, uh, maybe 14 or 15. Right. So I I played, uh, you know, a lot of non-video games uh, growing up, obviously. But I didn't play, I didn't play a ton of uh, video games as a little kid. Okay. Um, I think I had, like, because I kind of predate that thing. I think we had sure. a Pong. Well, there may we not have been. a Sears Pong. There were probably not a whole lot of options, I it's suppose. It a bright yellow plastic Sears Pong right. uh, yeah, machine. Yeah. I think we had that. You actually That's, had that in the house? Yeah. So okay. that would have been that would have been my earliest video game yeah. uh, home uh, experience. And then, um, obviously, played lots of other types of games. Played yeah. uh, Gin Rummy with my dad. He was really into Gin Rummy. Right. And uh, so we played that a lot. Board games? Um, not a ton of board games growing up, yeah. actually. I'm trying to think. But, uh, Candyland? And, you know, like those kinds of, <laughs> sure, like, sure. probably Monopoly. Yeah, I don't yeah, remember a lot of Monopoly when I was a little, little kid. Now, uh, what I'm the way I tried to frame this is, you know, games eventually became your professional life. Yeah. Do you feel like there was an inkling of that in you at that age? Or? I wanted to be a cartoonist. You wanted to be a cartoonist. Yeah, I was drawing tanks and planes and the little dudes running around um, when I was a little kid, and that was my first dream. I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to be a cartoonist. Huh. I went, I went through a phase like that mm-hmm. as well. Actually, although I am a terrible artist, so it didn't last very long. <laughs> um, um, and so, yeah, there really wasn't a lot of inkling that I would so. Uh, like we, we played, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, a mm-hmm. beautiful uh, neighborhood, very idyllic. Looking back on it now, it's like wow, completely idyllic. Right. Yep. I had no idea. I thought, oh, this is how Life childhood works. Is. Yeah. It was a beautiful kind of uh, suburban neighborhood, big, uh, wide street, and big lawns, and tons of kids uh, that just owned the street. There was right. a lot of traffic, and we were just out in that street every night in the summer playing kickball right. or playing. Uh, Ghost in the Graveyard, playing uh, various kinds of uh, 
uh, uh, folk games, yeah, with your neighborhood kids games, sense, yeah. uh, hide and go seek type things, right? And uh, just every all day, every day it was crazy. So that was I got a lot of that, right? That right. was the, the most, and then um, uh, then I went and. Uh, I come from a family of actors, and mm-hmm. so I went to school. I was going to be an actor, and then I was like, I don't. I just like, oh, the actors. It's not as interesting as the director. That's the guy mm-hmm. who's really doing the interesting stuff, and the actor's kind of looks like a puppet. So it's that egotistical moment when you're, you know, you're in college and you're just realizing that, you know, you want you, you want to be you control. Be the, you yeah. want to be in control. You want to be the boss and the guy with the brilliant creative vision. So, um, but then. I was also hanging out with my painter friends, mm-hmm. and so I did actually keep drawing, and I did a lot of drawing and stuff. And I was hanging out, and I realized, oh, I just I'll, I'll study painting. That's what I want to do. So um, I uh, so I eventually graduated with a with a uh, degree in in um, studio art in, in painting, and then um, moved to New York, and um, then started doing computer graphics okay. um, as a kind of an what t- a, what era where era would this be? Um, this would be like late in 80s the eighties at this point. Yeah, yeah, like uh, like the late eighties. And so this was digital work at this point. Yeah, so I was I was doing Photoshop and and at a, at a place called uh, uh, Art Greenberg Associates, which is a digital design studio that did special effects and um, so like film titles and stuff. What's like that. an example of this? Like just to um, well, I was working in the the print department, and we just did high resolution photo compositing of three D into photography okay so i was just doing like super high res super high um and photoshop stuff where you back in the early days of photoshop um where you had to like you had to use channels for everything you didn't really even have like layers it was just channels and and you'd have to cut up the we we were working on images so big that we'd have to slice them up and work on corners of them at a time oh wow um but then i that was a time where i started to realize okay i really I'm not as interested in using the computer as a tool to do graphics as I am in the procedural stuff that computers do. So I was on my own was getting into like writing um, little simple little programs that just um, kind of procedurally generated art stuff like screensavers basically. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just like really interested in how you could like take um, a set of rules and use it to like you could look at a painting reverse engineer like okay this is one example what's the rule set that would produce this along with everything else or along with a bunch of other stuff and then try to like write those and then let's like watch them endlessly generate stuff and um, no no let's back up a second here because um, that implies that you're now learning a programming language uh, yeah, just nothing. I mean, but I had an Amiga, sure, and I was doing this stuff in BASIC, right? On an Amiga, which I still like, find. What was the? Fr- but I, I, we, I miss writing in BASIC because sure. we had this like this. You always knew where you were. Like I it still line- have not wrapped my head around object. It had line numbers. You know, <laughs> it's like you know where you are. You're a pointer, and that yep. pointer is somewhere, and it's just going to go to the next thing. It made such sense to me. Yeah, um, I'm just now barely coming to terms. I'm not a programmer, but sure, um, I do um, uh, try to like. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm using Unity and C Sharp now, and I'm trying to like um, re, uh, re- rebuild some of those skills in a, in a more contemporary uh, way, and. Um, just yeah, just now starting to feel comfortable with this more um, object-oriented approach. That is what, how programming actually works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah but no. yeah, so I was just yeah, I was doing stuff in BASIC and um, uh, yeah. Do you remember like when you first like did, were you driven by yourself or did you had you seen someone else do this? Um, like, because there's a number of people. Pe- many people don't make that jump, right? Like 
most people were yeah, not programming at this era. Sometimes it's weird because I, I, it was really just like, oh, I, I wanted to do this stuff. I saw it as just being an extension of my art making. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and I thought, oh, the cool thing about it, computers is that they could, they can generate art. And the paintings and drawings that I did were already really kind of theoretical and procedural. Like, I would give myself little rules and follow them to like mm-hmm. generate a drawing. Um, so it's almost like I was already doing computer you, art. You learn quickly that you know it's just it's just bits in here, and they have different values, and like. It, but it was also part of it. my my approach to to. Um, uh, drawing and painting it was like super um, conceptual like I wanted to do drawings that were weird because they were um, very procedural and I wanted to um, give myself like strange rules that I had to follow and combine things that shouldn't go together and just to see what would happen it was like um, that was what I was really interested in so the computer is really good at doing that Right. And um, and so I started using it for that, and also for like language processing, like in the same way, like I, little um, poem generators that I would mm. write. You'd ha- I'd build up a big um, uh, tank of words, and then I had just had some simple kind of Markov chain like rules for um, for following. Uh, you know, it's like oh, you you can you can start with a this part of speech, and then if you start with this then linkages you know this part of speech 20% of the time is going to be followed by this part of speech and 30% of the time is this part of speech and then once you get up to seven or more words you start maybe ending it every you know what I mean that kind of thing and then right. and it's like wow this is very simple it works really great and right, right. it's like totally into this idea of like procedural uh, generation but even that like not so much games right. I played a lot of games on my Amiga okay I was super into playing them and um well, it sounds like you were. It sounds like you came from a background that you know valued artistic and creative expression. Yeah, and you were, you know, you probably knew that you could, you know, try to become, you know, a painter or photographer or whatever. But something drew you to computers. And what was interesting at that point is, you know, there were hundreds of years of history of people making art. Yeah. But this is the thing that's unknown. Yeah. Right. Is yeah. that is that how? how yeah, you I'm a novelty it? junkie. Yeah. I love. Like I grew up reading science fiction. It's mm-hmm. a huge. Uh, influence on on me in my life. Basically, it's like science fiction, right. um, Mad Magazine, <laughs> you know, and and maybe Monty Python. Right? I mean, those are like <laughs> three right. like ingredients of my <laughs> psyche. Right, know? right, right. Um, uh, but yeah, so I love the fact that computers were new and weird, and you could do stuff that people hadn't done before, and that was like um, part of the flavor that I, that yeah. I was really into. Yeah, um, I remember there was a there's certainly a feeling from that era that I think is hard to explain to people who didn't live through that. Where it's just you just had no idea what, what what would come of computers, yeah, right. And it was before before they, they there was a moment where they be, they got they took on a countercultural kind of coolness with Mondo two thousand mm-hmm. and Whole Earth Catalog, and people started like realizing that they had this kind of like interesting countercultural vibe. But there was a whole period before that when they were just like just weird and cool, and you had to recognize it yourself. You had to sort of like yeah. just and for I think some people just like. Re- naturally kind of like responded to to the particular qualities that computers have and just like oh yeah that's i gotta get some of that well i remember something that's very powerful for me is my first computer was a commodore 64 Mm -hmm. and that it's it started in basic right it booted Mm -hmm. up into basic with just a you know a cursor and you could immediately type you know print high and it would happen and it's you know it it was inviting you it was asking you to program it yeah right by the way if they want like this whole stem thing like Mm. that if you want to teach kids how to program like you should do more of that right you should have operating systems someone should just make a smartphone that you can that that 
crashes to the sea prompt. You know what I mean? Like, give kids sure. a fucking opportunity to, like, see what's under the hood. That's part of the – it's a, one of the downsides of the fact that we now have, like, the, it, you know, user experience as a science and we have yep. these, these beautifully designed operating systems that hide everything away. Yep. It's unfortunate. Yeah, I remember that transition from, you know, from Commodore to then the Mac and Amiga where I was like, okay – I don't have a prompt, but I still sort of I know where my files are and I have a sense of how everything works. Yeah. And then, you know, the transition happened where I saw, you know, you know, Windows ninety five, or I guess that was what mm-hmm. it was, and um suddenly everything was hidden. And yeah. like the the operating system was making a purposeful attempt to like abstract that stuff away from yeah. you. And I could but even tell, then you could dig down a little bit and get that and see that there was basically DOS under right, the hood. Right, right. But you know, it was trying. It, it didn't want you to, no. to to peek in there. And I I had this sense of like this is you know this is a shift mm-hmm. you know and like people are going to relate to their computers in a very different way. Yeah, now. and now. Like and obviously Macs, the Mac OS is the really led the way in terms of kind of obfuscating all of that stuff. And, right. And it's I guess the one of the things people like about it, and it does like make a, a computer more like a re- refrigerator where you don't have to be yeah. a hobbyist to use it. And there was probably, but I don't like yeah. it. I don't like it. I I don't. Re- and when I try to like figure out how things work on a Mac, I can't even begin. Like I don't even know if my mental model for how computers work even applies anymore. Like right. where are the Files and there's like I think of things as look at there's programs and then there's files and the files are basically the, the data and the programs a special kind of data that you can put files in and the Mac doesn't seem to want to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things I enjoy about programming is at least I'm still feel connected to that world that yeah. I remember that like okay, ultimately I'm just creating an executable and yeah. it's going to change some memory and maybe I'm going to write it to disk and like that stuff is still the same as it is. Yeah. But but you know everything else that the computer pushes at you yeah. doesn't doesn't show any of that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's. Well, so during that era, I'd be yeah. interested to hear what were the games that you were playing. Like what? Um, and okay, so, beyond that, also, this is sure. important. Like, what did you think you were doing with games at the time? Like, what was their role in your life? Well, I think I would say. Um, so I was playing games on the Amiga. I remember these old, the couple of old games that blew my mind. Virus was one of them. It was a 3D game hmm. where you were a little saucer in a 3D world. It's kind of okay. polygonal. I, I remember that one actually. It's polygonal. It was a wraparound sphere. Uh-huh. It's a beautiful little game, and you would like you were flying. You would, sort of? you would hover around okay. this world, and you would try to pick up um, some resources and bring them somewhere else. And there were other things uh, sort of attacking you. It was like a little action game, but in this beautiful little um, you know polygonal 3D world and uh, I remember that just being really beautiful and like thinking, this is great. And again, if you grow up reading science fiction, you just there's like so much fun to be experiencing these weird new novel forms of culture right. and imagining yourself like, oh, I'm living in the future, you know. So there was a bit of that. Um, I remember SimCity mm. being uh, having a big impact on me and and my wife Hillary. We would just like build a little city and leave it. Yeah. running overnight mm-hmm. wake up in the morning and What's see what happen? happened like yeah. that was just like okay that threshold has been passed um i remember mist coming out and being kind of a big deal i actually remember playing the games that led up to mist uh, the manhole oh sure and, yeah uh, i did yeah, that I, earlier i did hypercard stuff mm-hmm. that was like my my bridge between like basic and then like quote unquote, quote unquote real programming yep. and i made a ton of games in hypercard and that was like one of those like Landmark games at that time, yeah. the, the oh. manhole. You know, I remember There's, playing the manhole and just being like, "Oh, there's, this is great." Yeah, because it's for, kind of for kids, but it has like a very sophisticated, mm-hmm. like smart children's literature, almost like the Phantom Tollbooth vibe to it. Even more so than Mist. Like Mist is great, but mm-hmm. the manhole had like personality that Mist is missing. Mist is very, 
partly because the 3D is kind of generic looking. Yeah. There's really not much. Whereas manhole is all the, the, the kind of two-bit art or whatever, yeah. eight-bit. I don't know how many bits are in that. It's black and white drawing right. style, you know. And this is a little hard to explain. In fact, you probably would do a better job explaining it than I would. But, like, I had this sense playing that game is you're aware that you're looking at essentially slides. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so you know that there's a certain rule behind that of, like, you're discovering this, these, these different slides. And each time you discover a new one, it's like... You know, this, yeah. this little new thing that yeah. you, you've experienced and this new location you hit. And, um, you know, Mist obviously had some of that. But when you're talking to more like this is this environment that you're mm-hmm. moving through, you kind of lose that more discrete element. Yes. You know. This, yeah, that's, that's, that's a like, very good way to put it. Like, you know, these are pages of a book specifically yeah. or whatever. Um, I remember playing a lot of Dungeon Keeper. Um, mm-hmm. Amiga. Oh, yeah. That was a game that – that was maybe one of the – another one of the first – kind of experiences where I just like, okay, I'm having a really deep connection to this game. Yeah, that was a great game. Oh, and and it's the... The the sound of that game, mm, like, you know, things like crawling up behind you and and, like... And it's like... And unfortunately, the... the, uh, Legend of Grimrock, which just came out mm. recently, I was so excited to, because yeah. someone was really going to revisit that and redo it. And unfortunately, it just didn't doesn't have the same. <laughs> I played it, I put it, it's, sunk a bunch of time into it, but it's hard to know. I think you can't, you can't, there. You can't go home again, or yeah. is there something slightly I there different? Some, I think there was some slightly different thing. I think there was a maybe. I don't know what it was. I don't want to speculate. I remember it. Dungeon Keeper having a lot of very chunky elements. Yeah, that's you know? me. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of what you just said about Manhole too. It's that same feeling of like. There was, it, it occupied a sweet spot between abstraction mm. and realism. Yeah. Um, because, well, again, art- you're, like, moving. It's like a chessboard. The world is divided up into yeah. these chunks. and you're. But then there's there, there's some smooth movement. The monsters are um, – are, there's it's not turn-based. Or, yeah. There's kind of real-time uh, behavior around you. But then there's also this kind of very discrete chunks. Yeah. Of, and I remember things like you'd launch a fireball, and it would it would, it would would move fast, but not fast enough that you couldn't kind of walk behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. And, like, oh, yeah. and, of course, that – You could run into it and yeah, kill you yourself. Run, you yeah. could do that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, and the art was not good enough that – and to me, this is almost like a bonus. But like, you know, secret levers or whatever, you got very good at spotting mm-hmm. them in the 2D art that yeah. was, you know, the same essentially, yeah. you know, repeated. And that was – you know, it was, it was a very, again, discreet, you know, element of the game, yeah. you know, yeah. which, was, which was nice. Um, and then I played an, – another big milestone game for me was at work, at RGA, mm-hmm. um, we got a we, – we would play games. I remember we would – sit around playing games like Mortal Kombat was one and mm-hmm. I remember watching Mortal Kombat and I was never I didn't play a lot of Mortal Kombat but I remember playing a little bit of it and then watching it and there was a kind of a light bulb that went off in, in my head when I realized oh this is this looks terrible but it's actually it's kind of like chess right like this is a game you could sort of get good at by thinking through. it looks like it's just a like um, mm-hmm. a ridiculous, you know, game of, about. You know, Had you seen Street Fighter or no, other games no, like that? At that point? Like, yeah, so I was, was not. This is kind of my first exposure to yeah. fighting games. It's like that kind of. It's a real time chess, like, like it's yeah. chess where there's simultaneous moves, and it's mm-hmm. like that was a light bulb that went off my head. And then another really important milestone was we got a copy of uh, a demo um, disc, mm-hmm. you know, taped to the front of some magazine, uh, some video game magazine of the um, of Wipeout. And um, yep. this demo of Wipeout was like one track, and you could play it, and it had like this amazing soundtrack. Um, I forget which which song from the soundtrack was in the in the demo, but um, we would sit around playing that, and it blew my mind. So first of all, you you weren't allowed to cross the finish line. So if you crossed the finish line, it reset the demo, and you had to like wait a mm. minute for the menus to come back. So we would take turns, 
you know, racing and trying to get good, but then right before you cross the finish line, you'd have to like swerve out and let someone beat you <laughs> so that the, the demo would just restart the race. Sure. Because if you lost the race, it would just restart. But if you won the race, you had to go back to the menu. Um, so that was like, and we just played that over and over again. It was the first time I recognized, oh, this who, is something. Who is, who is we at this uh, point? At that point, it would have been Eric Zimmerman. So oh, at okay. that point, I, I had hired Eric, again, kind of out of art school. But you hired him. Are you still in your art job? At RGA. So this is RGA, and, and the studio had, had had evolved to be had go from being um, uh, special effects and, and, and digital uh, graphics to um, having an interactive division. Okay. And so, which I helped them kind of build and was sort of leading. And, and um, what does that mean exactly? Uh, we were doing websites and okay. CD-ROMs okay. and uh, games. Okay. Um, so um, we did some early, like, basically CD-ROM games, right? Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, um, and what were these, what were these like? Um, so the first one was uh, Gearheads. Okay. Um, and so there was something that uh, we just, yeah. Er, I, so I hired Eric out of art school. Okay. And um, he, you know, was someone who was, like, super interested in games and, and um, really impressed me as being really smart and talented. And um, and he had this amazing kind of uh, ability to, at the time, no one was thinking along those lines that, like, oh, yeah, games are like this super important form of culture mm-hmm. that they there's no reason why we shouldn't make games that are every bit as sophisticated and deep and complex as movies or novels um and you know have that same kind of um smart kind of approach that that um with a, a sensibility that's informed by history and and the same energy you would put into making your art um you should put into to making games uh, and uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was like this incredible um, spirit of, uh, of intellectual uh, curiosity and, and boldness applied to games, right? Not just, oh, we're tinkering with games because they're entertaining and fun. It's like, no, we're going to make games the way that people make poetry. They're going to change the world and right. like do this bold, you know, have this bold, uncompromising yeah. vision. And this is, know, this, is the, of, this should you know. be the output for all my creativity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, we yeah so we, we immediately started so I was working with him to kind of like um, come up with and, and, and also Karen Seidman at the time who's another New York uh, designer we were um, working together to kind of create a vision for you know hey let's make a game studio mm-hmm. um, that is part of this larger what interactive was, studio inside of a big design so what was design. it like to pitch that inside was that there was money so it wasn't an issue or like was this were you guys challenged or I don't re- I don't remember exactly <laughs> looking back on it it was like why, yeah there should have I, I that, think that there was early just, moment is always interesting. So right? yeah, I think there was a sense. Where, I think there was just a desire to get into um, interactivity, mm-hmm. and uh, by the by Bob Greenberg, who owned the company and saw you know kind of had the vision to see that oh this is where things are going. Yeah. Um, and then we had enough bluster to just convince him that yeah you should be making games and websites and CD-ROM. So we had projects that were like 
educational CD-ROMs yep. of the type of that era, you know, these kind of terrible things. We had these C- client-based projects right. where it's like there's like advertising related. And, and this is the, 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 the whole essence of like New York. The New York game design scene has its roots in like all these new business models for right. the game industry. Like that's all we ever had because we never had AAA. You right. know, we just had like we were doing client-based work and then we were doing educational stuff and we were doing grant-funded right. stuff. And well, it sounds just like this is very grounded in that whole kind of multimedia CD-ROM That was the era. Time. But even so, so we, we recognize that that's not what we want. That's not the kind of games we wanted to Interesting. Well, that's, we, so we had this, you know, this, this very pretentious... Because you had a grounding in games previously. You've been playing, yeah, quote-unquote, real thinking games. Thinking about them, for, playing for them, time. yeah, and like, like passion and, and loving them. And so we had this pretentious um, design philosophy called rhizomatic uh, game design, which, you know, um, kind of comes out of like... Uh, so what is uh, Deleuze and Guattari, these you know continental philosophers, and and, uh, and <laughs> guys are clearly from New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, can you imagine, right? Um, and this is like in the you know whatever late eighties, early nineties. Uh-huh. But but we so we made Gearheads, and Gearheads was um, a real time strategy game. Basically, it okay. was a two player uh, game. It was a battle of wind up toys. So that was the theme. Hmm. Okay. Um, but basically, two players. It was like a hot seat game. Okay. And, um, hot you, seat real time? Yeah. Well, you're like sitting at the same computer. <laughs> okay. You're sitting at two You, you, you play mean like, like Mule? Like you have half the keyboard? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. So you're sitting at the same computer and um, you're either playing a, a single player playing against the AI or you're two people sitting at the same right. local multiplayer, as yeah. they call it now. Um, and, um, and you have these wind-up toys and you can, out of the sort of dozen or so, they, they all have different properties – um, you put together a box of like you know three to five, and then you do that before the match. Yeah, you're selecting your units, you're drafting the toys you want to bring to the battle, and then um, during uh, the battle, you're just like moving an arrow up and down, you know, the the side of the screen um, in these discrete chunks, and uh, and the longer you wait, the more the toy gets wound up. Hmm. So you're waiting. So there's this tension between you want to fire it off right away, right. Um, but the longer you wait, the more energy it will have. And that was the basic mechanic. That's the huh. hook of the game. So then you stand out, and each toy has its own behavior. Like one of them will go uh, like uh, Ziggy the cockroach um, went really fast, but he was very lightweight, and he went moved chaotically. So he zips around, you know. But if another he bumped into another toy, he'd get knocked back really quick. And you were trying to get toys across. Right. Your opponent's side, and and here she's trying to you, get your toys across your side. So when were you selecting which toy you would launch? Um, you because you say you, you wind would go up. left and right to choose toys, okay. and up and down to move the arrow. Okay. And once you once you start going up the arrow, had you committed at that point to a specific toy? Yes. If you ch- no, you could always choose a new toy, but then the 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 winder would go back to zero, right. and you'd start winding again. Right. Okay. So you sort of committed. It's, yes. And okay. would you very good game design? Yeah. <laughs> well, that, it's that, actually pretty good. That, it's a, it was a pretty good game. Yeah. That's that's yeah. fine. I mean, yeah. you know, you have that that tension between you yeah. know, making a choice and having to react. Yeah. Um, and would you be able to see what your opponent was doing? Yes, you could see what your opponent was doing, and it was a game of like countering. It was a lot of countering, right? right. You would, your opponent would put out some of um, the steam shovels, which are slow and heavy and steady, mm-hmm. and then you would then try to throw out a skull, which is a uh, that toy. If it bumped into another toy, it would frighten it and f- and reverse its direction, right. right? So then, but then the skull is vulnerable to the kangaroo because the kangaroo, when it hits something, it punches it, and the skull is so light that a kangaroo can punch it all the way. So, but then the, as the board is filling up with the traces of earlier decisions you made, you have to like navigate that terrain. So you're making new choices based on what's already on the board, but also what you want to do. So, it's a, so there's that kind of game. It was, you know, like a real-time strategy game, mm-hmm. but, but quite abstract in, in, in a way. Um, interesting. Is there going to be a Gearheads 2 Kickstarter coming up? Um, no. 
<laughs> I, I occasionally you'll see. I think there are, there were a few like flash games that that um, that picked up, and I think we're probably influenced by it. Sure. Um, I think it's a. Um, yeah, it's a it's a fun little mechanic, sure, and, and yeah. people people did play it. Uh, well, it, it helps to develop a game if you're especially starting from looks like a scratch. You guys hadn't really made yeah. Uh, that was this is basically before. our first foray yeah. into into making a game. But and and but we again we had these like design principles where right. we're like we were interested in emergence. Okay. Like we didn't want to make make games that were like CD ROMs. We didn't okay. like games sure. that were about content. Wow. So even back then, like you saw those those. Well, battle lines, I guess. We did kind of, yeah, because yeah, we saw that. Oh, there, there's, there are these um, games like uh, these CD-ROM games, like Bad Day at the Midway, yeah. and these mm-hmm. weird things that are basically multimedia, yeah. and, and I they're was, just ways of getting at content. Where no, no, we want these games that yeah. are dynamic and have these emergent properties. I was definitely not conscious of it at the time, but I knew that I was those. I just wasn't tend to be drawn in by yeah. those games for sure. Um, yeah. Well, what I was going to say is, I, I'm not surprised that. You were, you know, probably had were somewhat surprisingly happy with the the first game you tried. Oftentimes, you fail at your first game, right? But um, because it's very useful to develop a game that you can play multiplayer immediately. Yeah, right. And because, this is how we made this game. Yeah, we had a, we, we worked with a brilliant over over a brilliant again. programmer named Ephraim Cohen. Yeah, and. Um, he, we had a prototype up and running in the first, yeah. you know, couple of weeks, and then Eric and I just would sit around and yeah. play this game, and yeah. we played it and played it and played it, and because it's a little two-player game, yep. that was the context for for yeah. making it and playing it. This is a huge difference of multiplayer development versus single-player development. Yeah. Like once you solve the technical problems, and of course, when you're talking about local multiplayer, yeah. there aren't really huge technical problems. Yeah. You're in the, you're in a great space design wise um, yeah. because you get it going, you try it out, and you and and you don't you're not relying on this AI that doesn't exist yet, yeah. right? You know yeah. you can immediately test out your ideas, right? Um, and you get that that fast iteration loop. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I you know that would that would be a good place to start. Did you have a sense of why you started that? Like, why did you first the first game you wanted to make you wanted to be like a two player multiplayer game? I don't know. I just think we had. I'm not sure where the original idea came from. It just seemed like it would be like the, the idea of a chess game where the pieces are sure. autonomous. Okay, that was the the central idea. That's what I'm kind of getting at. Yep. Just, part of there's some analogy like you had we were in just your like, mind. oh yeah, what if you had a chess like what what could what's a fun game that you could do on a computer? Well, what if you had like a chess game but where their pieces were alive and they had their own will and they had their own behavior and they were going all the time and it was right. like simultaneous. Okay, yeah. So what? So what happened with that game then? Um, well, we published it. Um, it was Philips, I think, was mm-hmm. the was a weird. We had these weird <laughs> publishing deals, sure. um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it sold some, but not much, right, and right. it was just like whatever. It just didn't make a huge impact at the time. It was a game. And there were a lot like, of games. Yep, a lot yeah. of games out there. We and we also we made another game called uh, the Robot Club, which was okay. educational. It was a game about teaching kids how to program. They okay. build little robots to mm-hmm. solve um, puzzles and or solve problems in little scenarios. And they're like they're in their high school and build a robot that can deliver the Valentine to the people. Mm-hmm. So, but it's like you're teaching the basic. Um, the basics of ori- object-oriented programming by assembling these uh, part, robot parts that have behaviors, and you're hooking them together and stuff. So that was okay. fun. We we um, I think that was published by South Peak okay. Interactive, another publisher that just eventually just went away. Right. After I'm not sure if we killed them, or maybe they were just <laughs> on their way out anyway. Um, but that that you know didn't create much of a of a of an impact. 
Um, but we continued to do other stuff. We were doing also other – we were doing web design and um, other kinds of like CD-ROMs and stuff. And then eventually so we this just was decided – this was still a part of your This was part life. of – yeah, RGA Interactive. So right. we did – Well, no, no. I mean for you personally. This was still a part of your of your professional life. It wasn't – you didn't feel like you were – were you feel like you were – Well, I was like – what you wanted to do at this Yeah. Point? I, think at the, I think through this process I realized – Okay, I just want to make games. Right. I don't want to make games and websites and mm-hmm. CD-ROMs and be like an interact like an interaction designer and making games and other things. Right. It's like no, I just want to make games. Right. It was clear to me at this point, like okay, that's what I want to did do. Did you tell people sure. that in your life in general at this point? Yeah, I mean, I I did, I did. Um, that was that was pretty early. I mean, there's there's always yeah. been kind of different levels of stigma involved with like I want to make I want to make games but I, yeah I didn't night, feel the stigma it just seemed so obvious to me that games were cool and interesting and the thing sure. that you should do and I just never I mean especially compared to websites which so sorry that's just boring <laughs> CD-ROMs whatever it was just like that's just not that interesting I mean it's more yeah it's cool to make a CD-ROM about falling water where you can like walk through a 3D model of the you know falling water and and um and it's very sophisticated, and it's like or a CD-ROM about a virtual museum where you're looking at at paintings and stuff. But that, that was not at all interesting to me because it was right. static. I mean, it's like it's a known problem. Like I wanted to make things where I had no idea what was going to happen and um, where it would oh. go and the kind of thing it would yeah. end that's, up being. That's interesting. I'm surprised because it's it it's funny because it's, it's you're talking about stuff back then that we're still talking about now, yeah. like fully, yeah. you know. Yeah. And um, you know, it's interesting that was in that was in your head all the way back then. And that we also started around this time uh, teaching um, game mm-hmm. design. Eric okay. and I both at, uh, went down to NYU and proposed to Red Burns, who ran the interactive telecommunications program. They said, hey, okay. let's, let us teach game design. And she's like, oh, I don't really like games, but okay, you seem like nice enough boys. <laughs> and so um, to her no, credit, Hold on, that's a, like, that's a pretty big leap right there. It was, actually. Because you guys, did either of you have teaching experience? No, or? but Eric was comes from a family of of professors like his mom and his dad are both college teachers so he grew up in that environment and for him it was just like in his blood he's like oh yeah of course you just speak the language yeah i know how to propose a class and we'll teach i was like okay let's let's try that and then so um, you taught one class at this point or yeah we basically team taught a class in game design that um you know uh, and these would, be, would have been for students who were getting a... This like, is ITP, which is sort of like NYU's version of the MIT Media Lab. It's the Interactive Telecommunications Program. And it's okay. people... Would, would these work, have been master students? Or? Yeah, it's a graduate program. Okay. So it's master students. And um, they're studying just interactivity in in a broad sense, sure. not not focused on games. So this in was, fact, this there was, was still of, a stigma of, yeah. around games, especially at ITP. It was yeah. just one of the reasons it was a little scandalous for us, us to teach a class <laughs> in game design. I bet that's pretty early. I, I don't I don't know how it you know developed all around the country uh, in academia, but yeah, it, this, this is, must have been one of the first. This is pretty early. I think it was we were one of the first people to be teaching right. game design. Um, so I, I suppose it was a, a sort of a wild elective at the time, as part yeah. of it, it was considered. Yep. You know. Yep. And um, yeah, and then we, as part of that process of, of putting that class together, we went to the library and just like started doing research, like what's out there in terms of scholarly writing about yeah. about games, and that's where we um, discovered people like Housinga and uh, mm-hmm. Calois and Bernard Suits and uh, uh, Brian Sutton Smith and all these people who had, were, were writing in sociology or anthropology or psychology, um, wow. and we kind of like. So you went for a real academic – Yeah, we, we wanted to like bring that stuff in as part of what the you, class was about. Because I would have assumed that you would have 
dug up, say, Chris Crawford's early writing. Yes, that was like a that. big part of we for sure. Um, also used Chris Crawford uh, and uh, Greg Kostikian, uh okay. was writing at the, uh, already at the time, so we were. Um, drawing from those as well. So the art of computer game design. If there had been more sources available of that, like if if more designers from the 80s had put their thoughts down on paper, yeah. would that have been your, your primary yeah. material or you think you would have still reached farther back? Oh, well, we liked the, the combination of the more, um, the broader kind of philosophical, cultural mm-hmm. readings sure. that would like put um, uh, games into a bigger context. Right. And then, and then the design, you know, writing, uh, the, the more uh, directed kind yeah. of uh, craft of did game you, design. Did we did ad- both of those. Uh, we would do, do readings of both of those. And then have assignments that were – it was still a stu- – it was a hands-on studio class. I mean, they, um, we would do these readings and discussions, but we did a lot of um, uh, just game design exercises. Uh, right. Students making – off the computer, um, not in digital stuff, but um, – you know, trying to understand the basic principles of, of game design by making board games, card games, social games, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. Okay. Did you assign games as well? Like, uh, you know, you should um, be playing this video game, you should be playing this board game? We didn't. There was a lot of, like, it was like an art school model of playing and critiquing each other's work a okay. lot. So we did a lot of that. Occasionally, yeah, we would bring in, we did. We did have, uh, we would bring, um, students would... Uh, we're responsible to kind of bring in a, a game and do a, a report on it. Okay. So we would, you know, a student would bring in a game and do a report, and then we we sometimes play that in class or um, that kind of thing. But there was a lot of in class play and critique and discussion. Okay. Um, again, like Eric and I both came out of art school, so it's very much influenced by that approach where you put your you you do drawings and you put your drawing up on the wall and people talk about why it's bad. Right. Sure. <laughs> and you know. And you kind of suffer the slings and arrows of, of your peers' um, opinions, and then you keep doing that over and over again until people are like, oh, that's, that's really good. And, yeah. and then, you know. So w- was the result of these early classes that you, um, that you sort of you know, diversified the, the knowledge of these uh, students going through the program, or did it actually lead to people who saw, saw something that they really liked? You know, I, I feel like I want to become a game developer. Yeah, it was a. We had um, students who would dip in and take the class and mm-hmm. had never done game, you know, anything related to games before, and mm-hmm. and uh, and then sometimes we would have students who would who would like seek us out and be like, okay, I'm I'm actually I want to focus on games, and so this class is going to become like the launching point for um, uh, for more stuff that I want to do, and that's really central to what I want to do, and. And um, but games were never a huge part of ITP. I mean, it was one element of what ITP did, but it was never going to be a, the major focus because that was you know, part of their identity is that it's not focused on games. It's, it's this broader thing about interactivity and stuff. Um, and so, but at the time, so then chronologically, I guess what happens is um, I Eric leaves uh, RGA to start his own studio, Game okay. Lab. I leave to just focus on games. I don't. I don't want to. Be doing games alongside other interactivity. So I, I and then I, I, I basically. And how um, do you what uh, in in what context? Like a freelancer. Yeah. So I went in as a freelancer. Or? I decided to be like, oh, I'm going to jettison this. This is a good career that I have at this <laughs> big design studio that is still around today, by the way, and going gangbusters. And oh, really? you know, oh. if I had stuck around, I would, you know, who knows, like right. whatever. But um, but do I have any side side. Do they have any type of a game thing, or do they just die once a year? No, I, don't and Eric left? Do. I don't think yeah. they do much games. I don't think they do much of the right. games anymore. 
Um, so, uh, no, I was just going to basically be a freelancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked um, – uh, I Who worked, did you work for? I'm just really I, curious I worked for Eric okay, when he sure. could – when I would come in and work with Eric on, on a project at, at Game Lab. And um, I would work for other like local – there were a couple of other little local studios, okay. uh, Pop NYC, okay. um, which – Became This Is Pop, and which is Vince LaCapa, and and um, really brilliant guy who also came out of RGA. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also the time period where I, we were working with uh, Tracy Fullerton. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, she came through uh, at that point. We were uh, she was at RGA for a while, um, and and then then taking on like freelance stuff on a, a kind of client based level where like a, someone would want a game designed for their website or for. A specific purpose and, and let's so is this nineteen ninety yeah now we're talking in the nineties mid nineties and then um, and eventually I Game Lab grew and I and I ended up joining full time sure um, and uh, and then around this time I was also I was, we we're making lots of games we we're making like little online games for Lego at this time. Mm-hmm. We made a bunch of games for Lego that I'm really proud of, like right. Junkbot, yes, uh, the Junkbot series, and uh, a couple of other really cool um, uh, games for, for Lego. And in that era, what would that game have been in? Shockwave, unfortunately. Shockwave, yeah, wow. It's, it's a nightmare now. Okay. You can try to go back and play those games. Um, Shockwave and then into Flash, basically, but a lot of Shockwave at the time. Right. Um, and uh, But then also we were working on more stuff in game lab we're trying to develop our own ideas and that same tension that mm-hmm. a studio has between like oh we're working on a thing for we a publisher versus work. we're working on our own yeah. personal vision so um but uh, so most of your contract work would have been uh, i guess essentially advertising based games yeah right? so advertising or like Lego, you weren't you weren't trying a to lot of games for Lego. you weren't trying to sell <laughs> these games directly right no yeah no so, um, so Lego wanted content for their site, and so for, for example, and we did. So it's not exactly advertising games. It is they're pure entertainment games, but they're for um, you they're know, a website or, that is sponsored. Yeah, yeah. and Legos try to. Um, I mean, Lego has the advantage that it, there's a nice affordance or whatever yeah. with with turning it into a game, right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's an ideal client. It seems like. Yeah. Um, but uh, at the time, then what else? I, at the time, I was also starting to experiment with real world stuff. So that's when I started really getting into like doing uh, games that had a real world component. Just doing games that were for a conference setting where you'd play with a hundred people. I was really interested in that. Like um, again, just wanted to try new things. I just right. wanted to experiment, and now, that's I'm, what was cool to me about games in general. Yeah. Now the the mid to late nineties was a pretty crazy time in the world of games. There was stuff just popping up all over yeah. the place, and um, People were making money by making a game and finding a way to distribute it and sell it. Is that something you guys talked about? Yeah, we talked not? about it a lot. We okay. talked about it a lot. Um, it was a real struggle. And then we we would we did we took some swings at it mm-hmm. and then finally hit the ball out of the park with Diner Dash. Okay. So Diner Dash was basically Eric's concept, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Nick Fortuno was one of the was the lead game designer on right. it. Um, but I remember Eric just basically coming up with the idea of a kind of a, a tapper variant okay. um, that uh, he wrote up on the whiteboard. And we were just constantly brainstorming and coming up with ideas and right. down, so. And um, I remember Diner Dash just taking off, and like it became sort of launched this little genre that was. For a yeah. while, um, uh, and when when would it when would this have been? It's 
got to be late late nineties, like right before yeah, nineteen ninety nine or something so. like that. I think so. And it's really hard to know the way you. I just I just don't even remember the way you sell a game like this back then. Is it was a CD? It was a, so people would buy yeah. it in a store. Diner Dash may have been the first one where it was like, oh, we're gonna make this downloadable. So that was the thing now. They were called it, downloadable. Right. Like for, this was just that transition Is it that model where you between, download the game and you play were, a little so bit? There, there was, and, yeah, exactly. It was that thing where it's like, oh, you play for a while, and, and then, then if you like it, you can, if you like it, you buy the game. Right. Like it's shareware, kind of, where right. it's like in... So it, there was definitely both a boxed product and also this idea that, oh, you can download it. Yeah. Um, and so those are two very, very different paths. And you didn't... You, you never chose to go the route like we want to make we want to make this big game and we want to sell it for fifty dollars in a store. We never no because we never thought oh let's well maybe we did think that let's try to get funding for a big more kind of a AAA style big budget like a, you know year multi year project. Um, instead, it was more like let's do some of the scrappier smaller scale work mm-hmm. that we're doing, but in a you know. For uh, to, to make a product that we can sell sure. ourselves and so, own. So I bet you can make kind of interesting comparison between, say, like you guys and Looking Glass at the time. Yeah. Because you would have been contemporary studios, mm-hmm. both with kind of roots in academia, yep. you know, East Coast studios. And, um, you know, you guys chose a very a de- very different route from what, what they did. Yeah. I mean, I think they, they just like right out of the gate were like, oh, we're this is what we're going to make. And, right. And Game Lab right out of the gate was like, oh, we'll we'll make whatever we need to make to survive. Right. Um, so we do all this client based work, and then we'll try to do stuff on the side. But it turns out you really can't do stuff on the side. It's like you yes. you are what you eat. Like yeah. if you're going to make little client based games, like that's what you do. That's what your studio is is about. And I think ultimately that was that was true of of Game Lab. Although Diner Dash was this original concept, right. original IP, and um, dumb. IP, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> it's the original thing. That's what original you, uh, phrase. How you thought of it at the time. Yeah, whatever. When you push this IP out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, but I, that was, but at the time it was weird because I didn't really like Diner Dash. <laughs> I didn't like it. I didn't get it. And Three when it secrets. took off and Good. become, and when it became the big breakthrough uh-huh. for Game Lab, I was like, that's, I think it's maybe time for me to move on. It was like I love Game Lab, I love the people, and and I had I was so excited to to continue to work there and do other stuff. But I also felt like okay, this I get that this is a thing and it's super popular and it really and it's like I, what were your issues? I with felt it? weird about working in the context where I didn't didn't because rock what, the thing I was making, okay. and I didn't want to make something for an audience that I didn't. Love I mean, what people would remember about that is sort of a quintessential casual game, right? Yes, you know, it's simple. I mean, there's there's a, there's there's a system there. It's mm-hmm. it's it's not too not too not too complex, but it's pleasant enough, yeah. right? Um, and what was what were your issues with it? I don't know. I just didn't connect. I mean, many games don't. Yeah, sure. They just don't. Like some games do, and some games don't. I mean, did and you want? Was it just? You didn't want to make. Was it the scale of the game? Was it the? Um, was it the the lack of depth? I guess like what no, I, I'm because to, like, I think in in many ways there's not you know Diner Dash is no less deep than sure. any other game. Yeah, I don't wanna, really. It's pretty. There's I don't a lot wanna, going on. It's like a little real time action game with yeah. where you're you do resource management. You got these things stacking up, and yep. you're thinking about oh how can I optimally yeah. like yeah, pass these things through the classic time thing. management type. Yeah, game, it really right? is. There's and nothing, and so there's not it's not a lack of depth. It's just I'm trying to get at like what what it was that you think you wanted to I do. I honestly don't know. I yeah. honestly don't know. I just it didn't click with me and. And I could start to feel this, div- this like, 
gap open up between between that audience and my own sensibilities, my own taste. Mm. You know, yeah, the um, sense the people who were buying the game. Had yeah, not... I just felt like okay, this is I don't I don't want to go down the road of starting to make things for. For, that I don't love myself or for an audience that has a different set of, of sure. tastes and stuff. And um, and so for for multiple reasons, I, I decided I'm going to go ahead and just take off and do some other things. I think right. I, I did a little detour through startup world. I was a... Um, a non-game a v- startup? Yeah, like I was a VP at Cosmo.com. I guess that was after... I don't know when that was. Wow. Remember the, like the instant magazine? Instant delivery? No, instant delivery. Oh, okay. I don't Cosmo, know what, not, not the... I don't the, know the what place, that is. Whatever. I'd be like, that would be a shock. Dumb, wow. like, like, <laughs> it was the first during the first bubble, and I okay. thought, oh, I'll just dip into this. And, sure, sure. And, and see if I can... Um, you know, uh, survive that way while I continue to like make these weird experimental games that I was interested in, mm-hmm. um, which were these like real world, you know, games that were just art projects purely, you know. Did you, like, I guess, did you have a feeling that if you had quote unquote a regular job, whatever energy you had for games would yeah. be unhindered by right. any exactly. sort of cons- whatever? I was just ready for a change to yeah. try some new things, and that was part of what was going through my head. Like, I wanted to just like do some. You know, weirder stuff, and so that was around that time um, we made the uh, big urban game, which is this project uh, for uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like this, the, these giant. Um, so it was Katie Salen and mm-hmm. Nick Fortuno and I. Yeah. Um, so Katie had been invited to like create a game for for some design conference, and so she invited um, Nick and I to collaborate, and we came up with this idea for. A, we just had this vision for a game with these. 25 foot high game pieces right. they're like classic like pawns or like meeples mm. but it's like drifting through the city <laughs> and like a big weird monumental sculpture like a living sculpture that would transform this city into the world's largest board game but then it would turn out it was it was an actual game it wasn't just a gimmick it wasn't yeah. just a sculpture it was a real game so that's the game we made it was called bigger big game these giant 25 foot high inflatable game pieces and they were moving through the city it was over the course of five days and it was this weird big cool art project it was a blast and we did it and it c- couldn't believe that we had pulled it off it just right. seemed like the most ridiculous thing to what get. did the city think was going on like they it were was part of this design conference we had to get yeah we had to well it was we had to get permits. We, the yeah. sheriff had to like <laughs> sign off and letting us letting us do this, and signed off on the route. And every day it was the the you know the, the positions of the pieces were printed in the newspaper, and you could call in and vote on. Oh. You know, there are three different colors: red, okay. yellow, and blue. You would join one of those three teams, um, and then you would vote on where the piece would go. You know which route the piece should take, mm-hmm. and they were kind of like racing through the city, and people were voting on which direction they should go. And was there a finish line? Essentially, yeah, or? yeah. It was over the, at, at five days. They all kind of converged on this. Um, on this bridge at the center of, of the city, and it was part of this big festival. And one of them won? Yeah, yeah. I think Red won. <laughs> you and, can all remember that. Yeah. Right? And we really wanted it to be a game where the outcome was determined by the decisions that the, the players, that the, 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 everyone was invited to play, the whole, all the citizens of the city. And we wanted it to be a, a game about how well do you know your city and routes you're choosing. Uh, this might look faster, but Did it's uphill. Did you plan out all of the branches ahead of time then? Um, yeah, every day you're choosing between two possible paths. Okay. And, so um, if you had five days, you went out to whatever, yeah. 16 possible Well, it was like each, each – um, there were like these three different routes. Uh-huh. And each one every day had two possibilities. Oh, and you would so they, between them. it was like yeah. the pearl of string. Yeah, exactly. String of pearls, string right. Of pearls. Yeah. It's a pearl and string. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so that was, that was wait, fun. But wait, hold was, on. If, they, if it comes back together, what's the – 
what's the good thing about picking the right path? Like uh, because it, the faster, short. so it's like every day you, so it would time you're, you? you're timing, you're seeing how long it took your piece to get to, to the, every day there was a, uh, an endpoint you're trying to reach. Okay. That, the, the, was everyone the on base. the same path then? No, there were three, three different paths, paths, red, okay. yellow, and blue, yes. and each of those uh, diverged um, and you were, every day. And you were th- trying and to so make it so those paths were a sort of the same length. Yeah, they they were roughly the same length, and so people were choosing which one did they think would be have less traffic, mm-hmm. be easier to maneuver through. It was really meant to like get people to think about their city and and, but also change the scale in which they thought about their city. Like all of a sudden, like transform their their vision of their city and imagine it all of a sudden as a strategic space and think about oh well, how would I move a giant twenty five foot high game piece through here? Like, shouldn't yeah. go that way because that's a, there's a bridge. But this did, way is how did it move? Um, Teams of, of student of college students who were volunteers okay. that would pick it up and carry it. And um, <laughs> yeah, this is, sounds incredible. It right? was. It was an amazing, fun, cool, weird game. And and uh, when the piece you know got every day when it got to um, that day's checkpoint, um, it would set up there, and that would become a little gathering spot. And people around from that community would come and hang out, and they, we had these giant dice, and you could roll the giant dice, and they were just accumulating mm-hmm. points, and then whatever piece had the total cumulative. Um, die rolls that was the highest got a little boost the next day. You got like yeah. a five minute head start. So what did you what did you feel when you were doing this? And, and as it happened, like it was, what, what did you think you were doing? And how like how well did you feel like you well, were we thought okay we're making a game, uh-huh. but we're making like a weird experimental art project mm-hmm. that is also a game. It's a fully a game. Like the cool things about it are the cool things about games. You know, it's right. not just that it's a, a riff on games or a comment on games or something. It was like no, it's actually a game. Um, and uh, it was around the same time I started – so I did that and then I was still teaching at ITP at the time. Okay. I think Eric it was maybe had stopped teaching and I was still teaching just game design solo. And um, Clay Shirky, who also teaches at ITP, said, oh, you should teach your class in these big games that you're doing. And so I started to teach a class called Big Games, which is about like oh, big, okay. large-scale, real-world games mm-hmm. um, that street games are things that take place to overlap with the real world somehow. And uh, the first year of teaching that class, the students all got together and for their final project. They made Pac-Man Hatton, okay. which is a life-size version of, of the arcade game that's played on the New York City streets okay. as a grid. It's kind of a visual pun almost. And um, so that generated a lot of interest and attention. And then now, I'm curious about that one as well. Yeah. Um, so how literal was that in terms of like this is Pac-Man? It was three ghosts and one Pac-Man. Uh-huh. They were yeah running around the, the streets. Um, and what was it the was, time frame? Like this was it would it would it would play out over the course of like a, a game would play out over the course of like half an hour or okay. so. And Pac-Man was running around. It was it was like a game about were there pellets or were you essentially yeah. just... okay. So there's a there was a, a there was a digital map, um, and then the players as they were running around, yeah, as Pac-Man was running around, he was collecting pellets, and that was his score. Okay, and he was trying to get the highest possible score, and. Um, he could. He knew the the position of all the ghosts, but the ghosts didn't know the. How position How did he of him. know the position of the ghosts? He was being told, like he, via phone. Being phone like okay. he had a, every player on the street had a corresponding controller player in HQ, because and they now, were in nowadays verbal. You do some sort of iPad. Yeah, nowadays this was before yeah. you had like yeah, yeah. hot and cold running location yeah, yeah, yeah. on an iPhone. Um, but it actually worked really cool because it was about information asymmetry. Like, sure. Pac-Man's outnumbered, but he's smarter because he, he knows, knows the position is. of and the ghosts. And what ghost. were the – so the people driving the ghosts um... – They were not – they didn't know where Pac-Man was, but they knew where he, they were. And they could see when they got to a corner – Could they talk to each other? Y- yeah. Okay. And they could um, see when they got to a corner whether there were um, dots left. Mm. 
or not. Mm. And so they were trying to Piece extrapolate together. where Pac-Man was. Basically. And, and then once they spotted him, they'd say, oh, I found him. Then they'd try to like corner him. And then there were like power pellets where if he grabbed one, he would you know, be able to chase them sure. and try to catch them. And I suppose the ultimate goal is if he gets all the pellets before they – Yeah, exactly. He's him, trying to clear they, the board. They win. Yep. yep. What was the uh, – how balanced was the game? You know, it was – it was fun. It was a fun game. I don't know if it was super well balanced. I'm just curious. Like, you know, you My goal for this game was... How many times was, did you play it? Uh, it was definitely played like maybe a dozen times. And how many times did one side win versus oh, the other? The, Pac-Man never cleared the board. Okay. So you were just trying to get as many pellets as you could. So it was like sure. you're going for a high school. Which is... That's that's, that's what it was that's about. Yeah, that's that's, what it was. So that, was, that was how we balanced it, by not trying to be, make yeah. win or lose, but by getting high score. Right. Um, my goal was simply to have no one die. Uh-huh. Like, I wanted no one to be hit by a truck. <laughs> that was my entire <laughs> um, own, own contribution. Um, yeah. And then... Um, they tried to... But one of the people who was, who was involved in that was Dennis Crowley, who then went on to make uh, Foursquare. Um, mm. And he was just like a passionate... Like, he was one of the main guys on the team, like, designing this thing and... and and that kind of like overlap between real world and virtual uh-huh. um, is, um, yeah, he's something he carried on to his like like you know, sure. uh, yeah. uh, ideas for. The, who, how, how many people were moving the ghosts around? Um, so each ghost was just a person. Oh, it was just so it was one, person. one person in a ghost costume. So there were three people three on the ghosts. ghost team. Okay, yeah. so I was wondering if, I, if, one was a, if it was a large group, I would think they would actually send out spies to like look for. No, nope. no, nope. each each ghost was just on their own running yeah. around. So that sounds like um, fun. <laughs> yeah, and then so so based on that and and bigger in game, um, I got um, I got an. Uh, I met up with this now, what's Kevin, the, guy, Kevin Slavin. What's the framework for that? Like, was that was that a grant or no? That was, was just that a class. Just, just, that was just, that was just something class. put that together for the class yep. and like just, they, this is their class. This is their final project. They get, designed it. They created it. And did you get media attention? Like in terms huge, of like this, this it was like this huge internet phenom. Like okay. people are like it just tickled people's fancies. Sure, they just yeah, saw it. They loved that the, the the joke of it, the street theater of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it, we were there were people running versions of it all over the the world mm. um pac leon and and uh pac manchester and <laughs> you know right. people all over the world uh doing it and and having a blast and so um that became like a just a little you know um cottage industry unto itself for a little while um but uh, i continued teaching big games and then i got so i i got in touch with this guy kevin slavin who what else uh, would you teach in that class like um, there was there, there were other kinds of games. People were making games you play on subways. Okay, uh, you know games that you play um, play using the te- telephone uh, uh, kiosks. Okay, right games where it's about like own like like there's this awesome game called um, I forget what it's called like um, Phone War or something where it was like oh we. There are all these like phone booths that are still around. No one really uses them anymore. Mm-hmm. Let's make a game that uses these phone booths. Okay. Um, like leaving something in them or calling to the phone No, booth, you or? would call from that phone booth okay. to HQ okay. and, and type in a code. The HQ can identify which phone booth it is uh-huh. based on the number that's that calling. Got called, yeah. So we went out and first mapped all the phones and got their numbers. So then you would once you owned a phone, it was generating points for you. Okay. And then but another team could come along and right after you steal it back by making a call from it to you know what I mean it was just like again before you had hot and cold location right, right. you were just trying to use whatever like infrastructure that was already in the urban environment to make games yeah. out of like we just wanted to treat the city like a platform for making games so no I bet you'd have some interesting thoughts about one of these sort of concepts that keeps seems to bubble up from time to time is you know location based gaming yeah right and it never seems like 
the promise has been fulfilled, no. right? No. Why? Why yeah, not? So I'm a good. I ask that question because I should know <laughs> the answer, but I don't. Okay. Um, so, like I said, I, I met this guy Kevin Slavin. We started a company based on these games, basically. He because right. he was coming out of advertising, and he was saying, "I think you could get people to pay you." to give you a big budget to do games like this on a large scale as a form of promotion okay. um, instead of advertising and just do a is, big crazy spectacle game and this is Area Code? yeah so this okay. is the origin of Area Code so this is the, how our studio started really doing these kinds of games and then um, and we did a ton we did and a lot of them were really good Plunder mm-hmm. was one we did with the early kind of a browser like for laptops okay. uh, browsers started you started to have location on a browser before you had it on a smartphone Mm, um, sure. And so Plunder was a game where you just, based on, you would log in and your real-world location, you would discover an island. And each island had its own um, uh, resources that it produced and it would have its own little marketplace with its own prices. So it was a total, like, Taipei-style wow. um, uh, arbitrage game. Uh-huh. But where the islands, you would have an island that you had discovered at home and one you discovered at work. And the one at work um, produced lots of bananas, but uh-huh. th- there was there was no market for bananas there. But the one sure. at home... Um, would buy bananas for a it's high all price. All that distance and scarcity. Yeah, so you'd log in at work and, and collect a lot of bananas. You'd bring them home and sell them, and they would be stored inside your laptop, essentially. Yeah. Or? So you and so these islands were were um, well, they were it was shared, right? Anyone could eventually the the world filled up with islands as people played. It was never a commercial game. We just did it as a kind of a little prototype. Okay. But like thousands of people played it and discovered. I, like I went to we went to Japan once. Um, for a conference and there were like islands like in the airport you know that mm-hmm. people had discovered and um, so we were doing little things like that and um, but then also doing these big spectacle games Wait, for let clients me, let me bang me sure I yeah, understand that sure. so there are islands all over but so these were the, real world uh, locations like right a, but yeah. was there one server essentially that was keeping track of yes. all of them? Okay, one I central see. server keeping track of all of them. You would log into that through a browser, yeah. Um, and um, and uh, and that was we were actually working with Dennis Crowley at the time, and and uh, um, he discovered that like we had there was an island that you could get to at the back of the office, and then mm. one at the front of the office, yep. and he would run back and forth um, like doing this arbitrage stuff <laughs> and uh, just like making millions of dollars, like he was so into it. Um, and but why so why does location based yeah. stuff not work? Um, there are a number of reasons. I think the main one is that it's too much effort. People want to sit down and play a game. Mm-hmm. They don't want to play a game that requires them to go to a particular place. It's I'm busy and I've got <laughs> things to do, and I want a game that that I don't want a game that's giving me this weird task of. Going right. and making that people want to sit at a, on a couch and play a game. Yeah, um, and I can't really blame them. So I think that's a big part of it. Sure, um, it's a very simple answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not nothing highfalutin about sometimes that. Sometimes the it's simplest like, is the like answer. all of those games. Like I, of all the people, should. I mean, I'm interested in these games, and I've been making them, and I'm like studying the design of them, and having all these like thoughts about you know creating new ones and stuff, and. But people, I could never bring myself to play one of the one. You know, someone sure. would come like sh- Shadow Cities or whatever, yes. and I'd be like, "Okay, I'm going to play this game." And it's like, "Oh no!" Well, if not. even if even you can't bring exactly, yourself. <laughs> and if I can, I just have to be true to myself. Like if I'm not playing, the, I can't expect other people to do it. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I really dislike is is hypocrisy. I think if you sure. don't, again, if you if you can't get the taste of the game in your own mouth, then you should not pretend that other people are going to like it, like in some imaginary you know, scenario. Yeah. Well, so I never even really thought about design location-based game, but I would assume that you'd have to start with the assumption of, okay, 
all we really have is that people travel. Yeah. Period. Mm-hmm. If we're going to assume that like this is the big issue, yeah. that people don't want to travel, that you, the game, yeah, you make a game that taps into the thing you're already doing. Right, and that's yes. it. Which is precisely, I think, the right approach. That's basically the plunder approach. And I think that it is a good model. But here's here's the yeah. problem, as I'm sure we're both well aware mm-hmm. with games. You set up some set of rules, and it may be the intention may be that like it's something you you're supposed to only fit into your normal life. Yeah. But if you start playing the game, you start to want to do good at the game, which yeah. means you're then going to change your real life behavior, which will be exciting for a couple it's weeks. True. And yeah. then eventually you're like, well, this I don't actually want to do all this, and you don't go back to just doing your normal stuff. Instead, yeah. you just stop playing. The, the game. golden, the sweet spot that I was always looking for was a game that you could play that just took advantage of your existing location, and then occasionally you'd be so inspired, you'd be like, oh, I can't wait. Oh, maybe I'll take a little detour, you know. Mm. Um, I'm going to be the first person to, like, go discover this thing. So I'm going to go out of my way. And it just turns out that that's – I don't think that that's a hittable sweet spot. Yeah. I think you have to either fully commit to one or the other. Like, either crazy alternate reality game people who are willing to, you know, take a plane to, to Tulsa, you know, to discover some clue. Or the people who just want to sit on their couch. And then who will look at this and realize, okay, well, the optimal thing to do would be for me to make – a little bit of effort here and, and go around the block. And since I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to play the game. Because I don't want to play a game if I'm intentionally playing it badly. Right. You know, I want to play a yeah. game that I can play win, well right. on my couch, yeah, not a point? game where I'm like, you know. So, um, and there are a bunch of other reasons, but I think that's I think that's the main one. I do think that there are some, I think someone will come along with a, with a mobile phone, with a smartphone game that has location, one that kicks ass and is really good. One thing that might be interesting yeah. is a game where... Sort of the random seed is determined by where you are in the world. Yep. Or just something about the environment shifts depending on where you are. Very hard not to spoof. That's another problem. Is that the other problem is that smartphones compartmentalized. Apple does not want you to have direct access to location, Mm. Um, and and so it's very spoofable. Mm. It's very hard to make a location-based game that is. Airtight, yeah. And well, not easily. It, would, it would have to be. You'd have to get start with the assumption that you're not going to worry about cheating, yeah, right? Which, which is which fine is if it's single player. It's for, it but. is, yeah, it's fine if it's single player. I, it's hard to justify making a single player game if it's all about the real world. Yeah. It's so exciting that there are other people out there too. That seems to be so. We had so many. We did a lot of these, and a lot of them were good, and, and a lot of them weren't so good. We did a lot. Of, we had a lot of concepts, a lot of which were really good. Um, but we eventually, I think, we started to broaden our horizon too. So we also, we realized we don't want to just make games that are events. We don't want to make yep. games for location if it if it limits the number of people to play that can play them. And we started to do um, other kinds of games that worked with the overlap between the real world and, and the virtual, but in different ways. It wasn't just location. So we started right. to do like um, cross-media games where you were, we did a game um, for the Sopranos um, where it was a game that you played uh, in a browser that was like a puzzle game that was synced to the broadcast of the Sopranos episode. So you were collecting um, the characters, the iconic characters and objects and items and, and, and locations uh, from the, the Sopranos, arranging them on a grid like a puzzle game. And the, then five minutes before the show came on, it would, your grid would lock 
Mm-hmm. And then the show would come on and the pieces would light up. So when Tony was on screen, the Tony piece would light up and start scoring points. Hmm. And when the Bada Bing Club was on screen, that piece would light up and score points. And, and, that... if, they, and if you had them next to each other, there was a multiplier. Okay. So it was this like crazy little puzzle game about predicting what's going to happen in that episode, trying to place pieces next to each other that are going to be in the scene now, would together. Would that only be true live? Like that would only yeah, happen this if was designed for like – the broad, yeah, the broadcast is happening was in there, real time. Did they actually think through the idea that like they want to encourage people to watch the show live as opposed to was, like was yeah. this was this pre DVR? I don't even remember. Um, it was DVR was around, but this was synced to the broadcast. It was a way of getting people to care about yeah, yeah. the broadcast when this was like the show was in, entering syndication, so it wasn't yeah. the original. Um, run so people it was already it was kind of reruns of the show as it is and they were kind of thinking how can we make this something that is exciting to people to watch as opposed to just getting the DVDs or something sure Um, and so that was that was weird and cool and fun and that was my first glimpse into making a game and then there were forums of people who were playing and talking about it and Mm -hmm. watching them discuss what was happening and talk about it it was like once I got a taste for that I was like I never want to make another game where I don't get to see the players and Mm. see what they're doing and talking about and discussing and this community that built up around this game was intense sure and it was so much fun to watch that happen yeah Um, and this was just just pre-Facebook yeah Um, I I can definitely relate to that in terms of um you know, going through about six or seven years of, of working on Civ, yeah. um, you know, with various states of mental health, depending upon the state of the project. Yeah. Um, whenever I wanted to kind of, you know, just give myself a little uh, a little thing to feel better about myself, I would always dive into the Civ modding forums mm-hmm. because that was a place where you saw this just flowering of creativity, doing yeah. all this stuff that you know we could never even do ourselves, yeah. and you know, just. You know, it's just awakening all these possibilities. It's the best. And yeah. it's the best. You, you see what players do with this little game that you made mm-hmm. and how seriously they take it and yes. where they – How much they places care about they it. Take it. You know? it just is – there's nothing better. Yeah. We, we had – I got a little bit of that too with um, – uh, we did a game uh, called uh, Shark Runners. So was, was that the name of the game? Like – it's almost not like Sharking Wars, but um, Shark Runners <laughs> that was sounds like um, a good game, though. Shark Runners, yeah. <laughs> Shark Runners was a game for Discovery Channel for Shark Week, okay. and it was the idea. The, the The hook was we did a lot of games at Area Code that were like there was like a hook, there was like a conceptual hook, right, like a yeah, high yeah. concept gimmick. Our whole thing was that we wanted a high concept gimmick that would get us written up on Boing Boing, but then <laughs> you'd follow up with a real game that you can uh, actually play. That okay. was my part of the like the right. equation. I said like I love the high concept gimmick, but let's like deliver on it, right? right? So that's what we tried to do in every single project we did. So it's kind um, of a bizarre sort of marketing gene, yeah. If so that's the right term the, for it. The, the gimmick in Shark Runners was that it was a game where you have a boat, you're a uh, you're a, biology a marine biology researcher and you have Mm -hmm. a little boat and the boat's moving in real time on a map Mm -hmm. um of this area so you set a course and you come back like hours later and the boats reach that point and you're studying these sharks these sharks are moving through through the water and you're like setting a course you're trying to intersect the sharks and when they when you when you do you get a text that's like oh there's a shark so then you try to log in as quickly as possible and dive and get data from the shark and the, the gimmick was that the sharks are all real the right. sharks were real sharks. There's real GPS information from tagged sharks that researchers that actually were studying. And um, and the community, that that turned into, we thought we were making a little one-off game that was you know, fun and it's this crazy like real-world gimmick. 
Um, but it ended up being like this little mini MMO style community right. of these people because you could kind of like – I think the fantasy – first of all, there's not a lot of games where you get to play a scientist. Sure. So I think that was something that was appealing to a lot of people. But there's also this – it was before Facebook, but it had that Facebook play pattern of like, oh, this is a game – that's always on. Mm-hmm. It's always going. Yeah. You dip into it, but it's still there when you're not there. And it's like that SimCity that runs overnight. Yeah. You know, that was the flavor, and that was a new flavor. Um, uh, and that and people and then you could just like escalate. You would have a boat. You get a bigger and bigger and bigger boat. You could hire more and better crew. Yeah. The crew members would sometimes die because the shark would attack them. There would be a mm-hmm. shark attack if you dived when they were you know they had stamina that was going up and down. And if you dove when they were tired, there was a bigger chance that they would get attacked. Yeah. And, but as if if they survived, the longer they survived, the more data they would get when they dove. So yeah. there was this like t- little, very very small, very uh, abstract. So I think this, there's a little MMO style yeah, system. And I'll, we I was just about to. Just got, you know, yeah. I was just about to say exactly that. I think that era, that era is very interesting because no one thought of it this way at the time. Uh, I mean, perhaps you guys did, but essentially it was these were mini MMOs for yeah. people who had no knowledge of that other world. Exactly. Yeah. Or MMO meant a very specific thing. Like, yeah. Not just massively multiplayer, but like tank, DPS, right. you know, healer, like, you know, it was, yeah. was very, very specific. And, and we um, just kind of backed into that mm-hmm. by trying to solve some, you know, design problems. Like, right. we've got this real GPS data. Um, we we know that, that we want it to be this intersection where in the middle of the night your boat could intersect a shark and then there's that funny tension of do I wake up in the middle of the night and and interact so that we just tried to like how what system are, is going to get us to that point yeah and we ended up with something that was yeah we had people play that game for years we yeah. had a we had a guy who um um we had a guy who passed away and his wife contacted us and said right. you know he, this it game was, was really important game. to him and he had a lot of friends in it and and you know is that you know would would you mind you know mentioning it on the on the on the homepage right. and you know we did and wow. when when the, when we finally <laughs> shut the game down that a lot of the hardcore players um drove their boats into the center <laughs> of the ocean <laughs> And and killed uh, off all their crew. Yeah. They had this like weird mass like suicide, yeah, yeah. Mass, like, like you know this little ritual. So it's like one of the like classic like MMO like early yeah, early, early MMO. So that that behavior. whole that whole sort of phenomenon is so. I was about to say strange, but it's not strange. It's human. No, it's you know? human. Yeah. it's it's natural actually. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. You know, I I, um, I have sort of a pet theory that um, those early days of sort of the Facebook games. Um, you know, there's a number of reasons for their massive success, but one of the big ones was just it was the first time that a lot of people experienced persistence. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, this is the, you know they may have been playing casual games, who knows where, um, but you know this is one of the first times that you know they played something, and when they came back the next day, the thing they did was still there. Um, uh, yeah, I think you're 100 percent right. I think that's a huge, yeah. I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah, it's um, like that idea that there's a world and you're making an impact on it but it's that world is persistent yeah, and as probably, opposed to a little box that you open up and then when you close it it goes away yeah and the first time they played they probably had no concept of that right yeah. you know they're yeah. like this is just another game like yeah. bejeweled or whatever mm-hmm. or diner dash or whatever that they happen to play online and, yeah. and now suddenly like, so that was the thing about facebook that we yeah so when we, we did parking wars mm-hmm. um that was that's what we wanted to do we wanted to do like a honestly what we wanted to do with parking wars was a little um Almost like a board game style game, but it was persistent. Sure. Yeah. Like a persistent board game. You have these little pieces and you can put them and then it's, it's funny. And the same kind of like like how in, in Truck Runners, 
um, there's a, something that can happen in the middle of the night, and that's funny because yeah. of the persistence. We wanted to do the same thing here, where it's like your friend could be parking illegally on your street in the middle of the night. If you wake up, you can catch him yeah. and ticket him. Um, but it's very much like um, a board game. Yeah. Like it really is like it's very simple, discrete choices, yeah. and you're moving things around and these little yeah, it's very chunky and and kind of abstract and yeah. um, it's social and yeah. and um, uh, but again, we thought we were making this was for. A TV show called Parking Words. We thought we were going to make it something that was going to run a, for a week or two to yeah. promote this TV show. Right. And it g- gathered a, an audience of people playing it and playing it really passionately. Mm-hmm. And we had nowhere near enough game for the amount of appetite that they had. So they would play this thing for a month. Sure. And then they would write us these angry letters like, this is the worst game I've ever played. I've been playing it all day, every day for a month. And now there's nothing for me to do. Yeah. I've done everything. I've gotten all the badges. I've gotten all the, you know, I, there's like, we didn't realize that we had made something that people would want to play yeah. for more than, you know, a week or two or a fun little thing. We thought we were making a board game or like you would sit down and play it for a few days and get it and get it and then move on. But it's like, it became like a lifestyle yeah. for, a, for a bunch of people. Yeah, I I found Parking Wars to be just a, a fascinating game for for a lot of reasons. Uh, for a long time, it was unfortunately kind of like the it was unfortunate because it was the only game I could often point to as Facebook of like something that was doing really interesting and mm-hmm. unique with the with the the format. But now, of course, there's lots of examples. Oh, of course, of great it's, a, games. It's, a, it's a garden. <laughs> it's a flowering. You know, <laughs> isn't that weird? For sure, it's yeah. weird. Yeah. Oh man, I not for lack of trying. Not for lack of not trying. for lack of trying, but it's. <laughs> That's a that's a whole other yeah. podcast, maybe. Yeah, well, but. the um, yeah, like this this game where your knowledge about what your friends were doing in yeah. their actual life bled over into the yeah. real. And game. again, it's it's like it, you you get it as a high concept when you wrap your head around that, it tickles mm-hmm. and it's funny. But then there's also it you follow through with an actual game that's a playable game. Right. So that that's the one two punch I think that Eric could always try to do. Um, and yeah, we had people that were like. Yeah, they would literally, like, my friend went into the hospital. Oh, God. And I parked all my cars on them. I'm not proud of it, but, or, you know, <laughs> they had to go for an operation. Yeah, and I fault. need a place to park. <laughs> um, and and all of this kind of moral stuff that mm-hmm. you get when people in, in MMOs and in yep. persistent games where it's like, we would, people would be like, okay, you shouldn't, you should ticket someone. You should not not ticket your girlfriend yeah. when she parks on your I street. Love that That's it was, morally wrong. Yeah, I love that it was open-ended. You know, like when, you know, you, you, you were not supposed to be there and it was really up to them how they decided. It, was, it would allow for collusion. Were people, yeah, I was, people I was about to say, were collude. people trading? I mean, that's, people would f- straight up collude. Did the you anticipate that? allows for it. At the beginning? No, because again, we you just didn't thought, think people would play that long. People were going to play yeah. this game. I mean, I, mean, I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that. Like, it's nice that that emerges from the system. Yeah, no, but. we thought collusion was hilarious and funny and 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 fine. Like, there's no, yeah, of course you can't enforce a rule that you have to. Yeah. Um, and collusion is not uh, necessarily optimal. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had people that would make multiple accounts. We had lots oh, of yeah. people that were making multiple accounts, and then they had these elaborate systems for parking cars. You know. Um, it, I think one of the things that made Parking Wars worked work was that there was a sting to it. This is the thing that's missing from a lot of Facebook games. Mm-hmm. In Parking Wars, you can lose money. Sure. And you can lose all your money. You yeah. can go broke. Yeah. And so the game has a sense of like, yeah, I'm accumulating money over time. And that's just an, kind of a treadmill. I'm just on a hill that's going up. But there's no guarantee that you, you could lose money. Um, so when you got ticketed, that money was not just – 
earned by your uh, your friend that was taken from you and given yeah. to your friend. And so I think that's the thing that's missing from a lot of Facebook games, which are yeah. just accumulation. They're just like clicking and accumulating yeah. as opposed to the give and take of a, of a game where you can win or lose. And yeah. um, But we did have a lot of people who were just treating it like a um, – <laughs> Like a, a puzzle for how to optimally generate money, and they would have like multiple slave accounts that they would all park on each other's streets. And yeah. um, but again, that's the the kind of thing that people do yep. uh, with a game like that. You know. So now, did uh, did Drop Seven come along during this era? Yeah. So Drop been? Seven has one of the weirdest origin stories, which is yeah, we uh-huh. it was started as an ARG, an alternate reality yeah. game. So again, we had always thought of ARGs as being um, fellow travelers. Like we were interested sure. in them, but we didn't really love yeah, them. I'm surprised the term hasn't come up yet. <clears throat> well, yeah, because we we thought of them as being more like the multimedia CD-ROMs mm-hmm. that we yeah. were not interested in because they were more story-based. They were more about content. Yeah. They had puzzles and they had content. So there were a lot of what we were interested in, you know, lot, you know, the overlap between the real and the virtual, right. people running around face-to-face but social interaction. But they still sort of fit into the not-game category. A lot, yeah, a lot of storytelling, a lot of focus on stories and stuff like that, which just wasn't our bag. I mean, yeah. it was, it's fine, but we just don't... The other thing that I didn't love about them was... I always found them just straight up unplayable. Like I just sure. felt like there was a kind of um, of a delusion that everyone had that they liked the it was the one punch. It didn't have the two for me. Like it was mm-hmm. the everyone loves the concept of an ARG. It tickles people's fancy, but when you try, ninety nine percent of people who say they yes. love ARGs have never played one. Because <laughs> when you try to play one, you quickly find that you can't. They're played by a very small mm-hmm. hardcore group of people that that are like. That's their hobby, mm-hmm. and those people are elite, and they're very um, smart and and good at, at playing these games. They have really good taste, and they play these games. Most people just can't play them. Like, what? What am I? Where do I go? Yeah. What do I even? Do? Where but do I start? And they're like, very interested in the existence of them, and like the uh, yes, cool. they love reading about them. But sounds like but, many gamers' relationships to Eve. Yes, precisely <laughs> the game that people love to read about. Right. But exactly, it's a, so that was one of the reasons I didn't love them. Although some of them, I mean, did get played by a lot of people and enjoyed by a lot of people. In theory, I just never was able to fucking play one. I just couldn't no. figure out how to even begin. Where am I supposed to go? And then you're just reading these elaborate forms. And this is from a week ago, or yeah, three weeks ago, know. or is it from a year ago? Or am I looking at something? Is this even now? real? I don't yeah, know. No, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, um, but we got hired to do one for CBS for yeah. a show called Numbers, and we said, "By God, we're going to tackle this as a design problem." So we decided, how can we make a an ARG that that does fulfill on being a really playable game that's broadly accessible. But also straight up ARG delivers on all the cool, weird psychodrama of an ARG. All the is it real or not, and all yeah. the kind of like metaphysical stuff. Or, um, and so it would. We created a game called Chain Factor, which was the premise of it was that there was an evil genius. We did an episode of the show, yep. which is a TV about a detective who's a mathematician. Right. The episode of the show introduces this character um, called Spectre, who's an evil game designer. And he mm-hmm. makes a game called Chain Factor, mm-hmm. which looks like an addictive PopCap-style abstract puzzle game, but turns out to be secretly a scheme for doing this distributed uh, uh, calculation, uh, problem-solving it. So people are playing this game, getting addicted to it. What they're really doing is... Um, you know, cracking this giant uh, uh, algorithm. You know, they're 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 figuring out like how to um, 
you know, break the code right. of of this um, uh, this encryption scheme. So, what you think is is like for a big heist? You know, he's going to like steal all the money from from Wall Street, but in fact, turns out to be he wants to bring Wall Street down. He wants right. to crash the global economic system because he's just an anarchic. Uh, you know, he's basically a, an anarchist, and um, and so at the heart of this entire story. Uh, was the game Chain Factor, which was, in fact, a, an abstract puzzle game that you might play. But weird. Like, it, yeah. it was weird. And we made it weird intentionally. It was, like, mm-hmm. a little bit off and a little bit weird. But, um, off and different in the version that like we the know score- nowadays? Or? There's a traces of that now, even so. Like, the scoring. Mm-hmm. The scoring is not normal. It doesn't go, like, five points, then 10, then 20, then 40, then, you know. Uh-huh. It's, like, 7, then 21, and then, like, 48. And that's actually mm-hmm. because... I've never thought about that. Yeah, yeah and it's... Because the scoring system is like based on powers of E, it's okay. like E raised to the power of seven, and okay. it's like take like weird things like that, like a weird yeah, uh, game designer you yeah. know who's into math would would do. Right. Um, we wanted to be mathy yep. um, in an eccentric way, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so we did this game. Uh, we we created it. It was at the heart of this ARG. But the ARG also had these like real world puzzles, location based stuff, people running around, all the classic ARG stuff. But it also had this this abstract puzzle game that people could play and as they were playing and unlocking these clues that the puzzle game um, itself like you gained new powers that everyone had access to and that as you were getting higher scores on the puzzle game it would like spit out these error messages mm-hmm. um, that were like code comments from the code right. and that was how you were learning about what was really happening mm-hmm. and as you got you were getting higher and higher scores using different combinations of of, of powers, you're getting new error messages, which you could assemble into this kind of like story that you were putting together about Spectre and the guy he hired mm-hmm. um, to, to program this game and what it was really for. And then you were using that to like get you to the next clue in the real world and you'd solve the next real world clue, um, which were billboards and Times Square and these other things. Um, and that would unlock a new power, which so you went back and forth. But at the heart of it, we wanted it to be accessible to like all these people who were just playing the puzzle game online, but they were cooperating with and collaborating with the the sort of hardcore ARG players, and they were part of the process. You needed those those puzzle game players to feed these new um, code fragments into the, the, to to solve some of the real world puzzles, and so back and forth. We wanted to create this ecosystem between them. But what we found was people playing the puzzle game started to like scale up. There were like more and more people playing this puzzle game and talking about this puzzle game. And pretty soon there were way more people playing the puzzle game and who didn't even know it was part of an ARG. Yeah. And we would try to bring them in, but they would be like, oh, there's Whatever. like another one of those weird me- – this game is buggy. There's another <laughs> one of the weird messages, the right. weird code comments, like error messages and stuff. And um, and so eventually we did kind of like manage to have this big lopsided ecosystem where the – and we did bring some of these puzzle game players into the, the overall story and the um, – but after the ARG, you know, like it, like an ARG does, this had a, 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 a dramatic arc, and then when it was it was over. At a certain point, uh-huh. the, the the ARG was over. Right. But we were left with this, this game, game yeah. and we're like, this puzzle game could be a good standalone game. <laughs> so let's make another version of it, the same uh-huh. core gameplay, um, as just a standalone game, right. and just put it out there into the world as a thing unto yeah. itself. And that was Drop Seven. So yeah. it started out as a big. Interactive narrative, you know, collaborative problem solving, distributed computer uh, computation problem right. with all of these like themes about economics and and society and culture and addiction, like he had mm. designed all this other stuff. 
And then it became just this iPhone game. Drop seven. <laughs> it's so weird that like it's this all, little abstract puzzle game has its roots in this big. It's funny because yeah. it all strikes me as like just very surprisingly unlikely, right? Yeah. That like you be because you must have spent a lot of time thinking about how it fit into this this ARG, and that yeah. was probably what was on the forefront of your mind. Yeah. And we and hoped then, that the puzzle game would just be good, good enough exactly. for people to play it. Um, but, but we knew that we'd like we never expect because we know like making a good puzzle game is a is it like really a hard. Challenge? Like it's not easy at all. Right. So we never expected it to be. It's like writing the perfect haiku. You know, yeah. it's just one so, of those things. Yeah. Right? So we thought, oh, this will just be. We just want to be good enough that people can play it and will play it um, while they're doing this big distributed, you know, uh, mystery. You know, um, but. We struck gold. I think yeah. we just got lucky. I, it's, I, think I mean, I, I think it's, it's a timeless game. I mean, it's I think a pretty it's, good it's a game. Great game. Thank how, you. Yeah. How did? I mean, how did that happen? Like, do you, is there a? I mean, no. this is just a. Is there a small aspect of that you weren't you weren't over focusing on it? Yeah. Who knows? That could be it for sure. Yeah. Um, I think it 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 just goes to show you that you never know what's yeah. going to happen. You should swing for the fences every time, right. and then if. You know, take whatever you get and run yeah. with it. And well, it's so, like, so what was the but, yeah. what was the original idea? The like, very our, first did idea, it look very our, different at different points? Our original, I thought, was okay. We need to budget a few weeks, maybe a month. Well, okay. we'll do like a we'll do five prototypes a week because uh-huh. we knew how hard it was going to be to come up yeah. with a playable puzzle game. And we'll try all these different things. The first thing we tried was based on a little sketch I had in a, in a notebook for a two player board game okay. where. You have pieces, I have pieces. The, my piece is on a grid, uh-huh. and I can move it. It's lo- the, the location I can move it to is based on, on the other pieces that are in that row that and row in that column. column. So if there's three uh, pieces in the row, seven pieces in the column, I can move it to, to the three to the intersection of three and seven. In other words, I just want something where the, 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 its relationship mm-hmm. to the other pieces in rows and columns determined where it could move. What you can move. do with it, right? Yeah. So that was, that was, this, that was the, this little thing I had in, in my head for a strategy game. I said, okay, let's, let's try a version of that where it's something a lot, like the, the number of pieces in the column and the row, um, and we're like, okay, it can, it'll disappear if, if that matches the number that's on the thing. So that was right. – and so it was me – Kevin Kansian, okay. Mark Hagen, kind of like just coming up with this, like in a um, Mark. Hagen. Oh, so he—he's the guy mm-hmm. I, I worked with a little bit at Zynga. Yep. Okay. Yep. Cool. All right. So and um, and that was the first one we tried, and mm-hmm. it was like, oh, this works. Yep. Right out of the gate. Wow. So uh, Kevin Kansian programmed. Uh, Wait, like I feel a, like I almost missed a step there. So you went from moving it from. Well, the, we, the board we went game. from this little sketch of a of a strat- two player strategy game right. to like that's the core idea. Let's try that. How would we translate that into a single player puzzle game? Well, you just add you add gravity. The right. pieces have so the numbers pieces on them, down, right. and instead of like moving them around strategically, it's like you're it, they disappear if they match if the number of pieces other you know if the number of pieces in that row or column the match the. So in other words, it's like using. A number in because two that's, ways. That's in the a way. key idea, right there. Yeah. If the number of pieces match the column or row, yeah. If the amount of pieces in in the in the row or the column um, is the same as the label right. on the piece, then that yeah. piece uh, goes away. Do you know where that idea came from, or was that just somehow emerged from that sketch? Um, yeah, I think it just somehow emerged from this idea that. Uh, it's kind of like the tension between cardinal and ordinal. Right, okay. you have a you're, you're using a number as a label, but right. the number is also like an amount of things. Yeah. and when those when those happen to line up, something happens. Right, that mm-hmm. was the core idea. Like when those things overlap, then then that's the that's the moment when something happens. And this is obvious. What should happen? It should disappear because that's what happens gotta, to Tetris pieces. You clear the board. We were right. playing a lot of uh, we were playing a lot of puzzle 
oh god what was it called it's a it's a pan oh god i'm i'm drawing a blank um super would it be super puzzle fighter no okay the... no no it was not super puzzle fighter we were playing it would be um uh it paneled upon do you know paneled upon Mm-mm, no i don't um so it, it's that um style we were just, it's a game out that I, I'll, I'll look it up but okay. um we were playing a lot of that in the office and that was a big inspiration but yeah pieces disappear that's what happens in a puzzle game and there's gravity <laughs> so it allows for chains we yep. knew chaining we wanted to be a, we, we knew we just like chaining because right. chaining is what's cool about puzzle games so. Yep. so we just stuck in gravity and chaining and the idea that that and that so yeah Kevin Cansian had this little prototype builder that you were going to like change this you could try different sizes of the grid uh-huh. and you could try different amounts of the pieces and yeah. levels of gray you still and, had a, you still had to zero in on which numbers and what's the size yeah. and the rate and so all that so pretty stuff. quickly we we arrived at um at uh, a 7 as, yeah. as the sweet spot yeah. it didn't take us that long and we actually made a paper prototype okay believe it or not before cool. before their first version of the just enough to know just just enough to know it was worth chasing right yeah we put these Scraps of paper down and was like, okay, let's imagine what would happen if. Did we you use dice down. or you wrote them little numbers on discs? No, nope, we just like just had numbers on on index cards. You, yeah, yeah. You sort of like shuffle them up, and that's your new one. That's your next one. Where do you want to drop it? I'll drop it here. Boom. Right. Oh, right. that's going to fire off. Okay, we'll yeah, get rid yeah. of it. Okay, now this one's going to fire off. Oh, okay. Well, I wonder if I could clear the board. Pretty soon it was like, okay, this is worth. So that was enough to tell us that we wanted to make a prototype. Yeah. A real, a real digital prototype. So when I was so I was talking to Dan Cook recently about on this podcast recently yeah. about triple town i talked to him a little bit about whether he felt like he designed triple town or whether he discovered triple town do you have the that some sort of sense about that with with drop seven yeah discovered it's 100 percent. like it was it's just like you're looking around and you try things and most of the time what you try isn't isn't very good and, and occasionally it yeah. is or, or almost it feels the, like discovery to me almost like, the sense that that that's one of the few game idea game designs that Perhaps if you hadn't have done it in 20 years, someone would have – at some point, someone would have done something Yeah, maybe. Similar. Although it's weird. One of the things that, that makes Drop 7 work is how hard it is to wrap your head around it, actually. Mm-hmm. It's a weird – it's a thorny – Every once in a while, we, I forget how it works. Yes. And I have to remind myself. Yeah. And this is, this is part of its roots in this weird ARG are that we were allowing – if we were sitting down to design a, an actual puzzle game, mm-hmm. I don't think we would ever allowed ourselves to make something – as abstruse as this sure. core mechanic. We would just say, it's a little too weird. It's right. a little too eccentric yeah, yeah. as a core mechanic. It's a little yeah. too hard for people to grok. It takes them too long. But because we wanted this game to be kind of weird, like a, like a puzzle game that's a little bit off, so that's, we allowed ourselves yeah. to do that. So that's fascinating. You essentially explored yeah. a part of the potential game universe that you never would have got to yeah, if you that, didn't have this other because of the fiction. reason for it. That's yeah. where the theme and the fiction pushed us in a formal direction that we might not have otherwise done. Yeah. And even to this day, I think... It's, it's 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 still weird. It's hard for people to wrap their heads around it. A lot of people never do. A lot mm-hmm. of people never get Drop 7. Yeah. Um, but the ones that do, once you do wrap your head around it, um, that's – it's a great feeling because it's – the difficulty is of, of, of the challenge of kind of grasping that core thing is what makes it so deeply satisfying once you have. Like yeah. Once you've internalized it and you're kind of like using that as a new cognitive module. Is it the game you're most proud of? Yeah, probably. Probably. Is it weird that it comes from essentially 1% of your career or, or something like that? I've made a lot of games. Yeah. I've made a lot of games. I mean, um, I, I guess I'm so trying to get at that relationship between like how long, because for some people who are trying to design puzzle games, 
there's that frustration of like when is it going to you know when is something like that going to emerge and but it's the you can't draw a line right like who knows what it takes how how long you have to go through the process here's the weird thing about about drop seven it's like I literally had this thought when I was a young game designer mm-hmm. of and, and like coming out of like this art practice, you know, thinking about like weird experimental stuff and being really – that's my focus. I, was like, I literally thought one day, what kind of game designer do I want to be? And I, and I thought, I know what I don't want to be. If I had the opportunity, if someone came along and gave me the opportunity to like – Design something like Tetris. Like, cre- if you could create a game, it'd be like a little abstract puzzle game right. like Tetris. That's not what I want. Like, I want bigger, <laughs> right. better, more important, yeah, more yeah. profound things. Right. You know, I literally thought that in my head, in my arrogant uh, little yeah, head. Sure. You know, and lo and behold, the, the crazy irony of the way the world works. You know, probably my most famous game is exactly that. Right? Yep. It's exactly that, and I'm. You, proudest punch of it, yeah. and I it's mean, partly because the world changes you. The ch- yeah. world changes your I dreams. Mean, you probably based don't. On, you probably don't view games like that that way anymore, right? Yeah, I mean, I well, I still do, but I think I just have a a deeper appreciation of yeah. things like Tetris now. And it's partly just because I I made one and it was successful. Yeah. So that's changes like, oh, guess what? Now yeah. I like that. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, you, hey, that's the way the world works. You yeah? have to be a pretty strange human if that doesn't yeah, you know, rewire yeah. your brains a little, a little bit. Yeah. But it's also I just think because I've. I, yeah, I've grown to love and appreciate yeah. abstract um, games. Yeah, I mean, those more. games have their own level of their own type of timelessness. That yeah, uh, you know, a lot of games are going to are going to disappear, and people are still going to be playing Tetris. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, five hundred years from now, people are going to be playing Tetris. That's yeah. pretty much the only game I could say for sure that's probably going to be and well, this, besides Go and you know, and and, so and, and game, game designers love the idea of elegance, the idea that you can get a lot. An infinite amount of information compressed into a finite amount of stuff yeah. in the in the form of rules, and I think of like Conway's life, you know, Conway's mm-hmm. game of life, which is just this amazing example of that. Um, and um, not, you know, not to say that 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 Drop Seven is 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 like that, um, but maybe it's like that a little bit. I mean, it's a very small game in a way. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, it's like it's a tiny game, yeah. but I hope that it has some of that. Uh, kind of quality of, yeah. of being small but containing yeah. uh, quite a bit. But it's interesting also in the sense that you probably, I mean, would you try to design another game like, like that? Like that? Probably not. I'm designing other things now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I'm probably wouldn't go back to try to do another abstract puzzle game. Yeah. Um, I mean, you never. Just because I'm probably not going to ever yeah, do something probably, I mean, that it's, good. It's so, unrealistic to expect um, that. To... But. Um, yeah, I mean, another weird thing of that's a trace of, of the Chain Factor ARG in the existing Drop 7 is sequence mm-hmm. mode. Sequence mode is weird. Like, sequence mode is all the, the, I don't, I don't all the numbers. I don't Sequence mode is all the numbers are pre-computed, so it's always the same for everybody. There's only one version of it. Yeah, there's only one. It's you play like... sequence mode, it's like an infinite number of, of wow. discs okay. to drop, but they're always the same. They're always the same numbers in the same order. And we put that in there just thinking... It's like the daily sp- splunky. If yeah, the day, if the day, splunky, if the day never one, changed. If the day never changed. Yeah. And we thought well, this will be weird. I wonder what will happen when yeah. we do this. And we just put it in there for people to kind of play with and discover oh. and see what. And there's a very small set of people who are like deep into sequence mode and who basically have figured out how to get any arbitrary score that they want. Um, Infinite, essentially. Or? Yeah, you you can play as long as you want and get any score you want. Okay. Um, 
And that's sounding they, like essentially how people treat arcade games from like, you know. Yeah, the, this the is much more like just a single 80s. big mathematical problem. Okay. Um, so once you know all the numbers, once you've mapped out all the numbers that are coming. Um, now, it's still a non-trivial problem mm-hmm. um, because like, for example, it's totally non-trivial to, to say what's the highest score you could get in the first hundred drops of sequence mode. Okay, sure. But what's what's now, what's totally trivial is the ability to um, to get any score you want, basically. You can, so, so it, would, it wouldn't matter if you, if you change the seed. Um, they would just have to map out the new, um, the, the new seed. But the, the existing seed is, in fact, um, based on a mathematical property of a, of a number. Of, of, of course. The number seven. <laughs> um, and, uh, and there are people who've, like, designed... Uh, Robots like Lego robots that play sequence mode. You oh. know, they just go and like tap Lego the screen robots? of the. Yeah, they tap the screen like Mindstorm style <laughs> Lego robots that they're programmed to just tap the screen in the right order. Oh. And um, yeah, if you go on YouTube, you can you can find that. I, I've always, I don't know why you even write the term for it. I, I guess you'd say humbled or something. The, the amount I always feel like there's people are pour more energy into, at least certainly into Civ Four. That's yeah. not true for all my games, but more energy than I could have even poured into the game when I see what they layer on top of it. And that's that's one of those type of things where yeah. it's just like how, I love what? it. I just want more of that. I just want more of that. Yeah, I know. That's it's, what I want. That's all I want. It's, I just, it's just incredible. If you get some of that, it's like the best. Yeah. yeah. Just like, oh. <laughs> For sure. Um, I have to take off. Okay. I'm going to go to my yeah. dinner thing. I'm already running a bit late, but this was fun. Yeah, yeah this was a lot of fun. Useful? Is oh, good? no, this is this is awesome. Well, we, we've been talking for over, yeah, an, know, over right? an hour and a half, so... <laughs> Um, and then your your timing definitely allows us to skip over the Zynga era. Yes, that's true. <laughs> um, maybe end, yeah, end. Uh, it's kind of funny. I didn't know, but it's, yeah. Um, it's kind of true. Like, the Zynga era is like two years where I basically made one game. I went from making like eight games a year. Like, at Area Code, we were just making games all the fucking time. Yeah. Five games at once, you know, six or seven, eight games a year. They weren't all good, but a lot of them were yeah. good. A lot. Oh, they were all decent, and some of them were great. I was proud of the interesting, yeah. cool stuff. And then two years, I made one game, yeah. the yeah. friend game, and it's yeah. like that just barely limped out of the gate and never quite, you know, got a got a shot. But I was proud of it, but it couldn't work like that. I was yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, from the outside, I was always amazed how Area Code worked, just in the sense of like, it seems like they have all these crazy po- crazy projects that come from all these different sources, and it doesn't yeah, it seem like they sell so grains directly. Like, it, yeah, there must so have been... Hard. must be a whole... Work is the worst, so you're hustling all yeah, the time. Yeah, there must be a whole other half of the story to yeah. how you guys worked in terms of, like, pulling off all those deals. That just seems incredible. That was my partner, just, like, constantly getting yeah. that, getting yeah. that yeah. business in. Okay. Um, all right, man, that was fun. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, yeah. Thanks, for, thanks for doing yeah, this. Yeah, that was a blast.